Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So some of you know that I'm a huge fan. I mean, an unapologetically huge fan of the HBO series, The New Pope, The New Pope, with uh, John Malkovich, who plays the newly elected pontiff with the name John Paul III. It's just, it's so bad that it's good, and it's so good that it's bad. Um, But he begins his uh, rather lackluster pontificate uh, by addressing the College of Cardinals within the Sistine Chapel. And uh, as he gathers them together, he wishes to address the various crises that are afflicting the Roman church. And this is the lecture that he gives to his uh, gathered cardinals. He says to them, we only have one problem. I don't know of any other. And the problem is love. You will come to me. And you will say, Holy Father, there are worrisome currents of terrorism at work within Islam, depressing business concerns weighing on the curia, aberrations of sexual behavior, crises of work and ethics, men who murder women, women who murder their children. You will come to me and you will tell me of all the suffering in the world. But I will say to you, they are all hysterias of love. They are all distortions of our ability to love. The problem, my beloved brothers, is love. The question, then, for us to consider is, how are we to love? How are we to love? Well, that is the question of life. That's the question of life. And I would like to consider with you an ancient text from an ancient man whose name was St. John, and he was very old, and he was placed on an island, a little island named Patmos, which was where they put prisoners. And he was there in his 90s, writing away to these little churches throughout uh, Turkey. And he came to some uh, great revelations in his old age. And some of you understand that because you've lived long enough and you've reflected upon reality long enough to know a thing or two. And you've gained some wisdom along the way. And he had that. He had a little enlightenment. And so he decided to write about substantial matters of living. And the most substantial matter is revealed in chapter 4 of his first epistle, where he talks endlessly, endlessly about love. And not in a peripheral way, but in the deepest possible way. He gets to the deepest core of what love is really all about. And so I'd like to speak about 1 John 4 and what it says about love. And I want to talk about the direction to love and the definition of love, the direction to love and the definition of love today. And this is not a long sermon. Uh, So uh, the direction to love, he says it three times. He says it three times in this passage. Beloved, let us love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Three times at the beginning and at the end of today's passage. Our text begins and concludes with a commandment. But notice the commandment is buried in the notion of identity because he calls you beloved before he tells you to do something. 
He says, beloved, let us love one another. In other words, he's saying to all of his people, you're already regarded by God as beloved. You're already close. You already received a great and enduring bond with the eternal father. Beloved. And since you are beloved, I want you to love one another. Now, the one another is important there. The one another is not entirely universal. It's not speaking about the whole wide world. It's not uh, speaking necessarily even about biological family. The one another there is church language. He's saying within the ecclesia, within the body of Christ, within the gathered community, I want you to love one another. I want you to love one another. Uh, and, and John's thought about that, why he thinks that it would be great, of course, to love everybody in the world. That's a no-brainer. But especially to love the communion of saints. Uh, this is his logic, right? God's essence, his isness, if you will, can be summarized in one word, love. That's why John in his epistle writes, God is love. If God were to have one word that would communicate his core attributes, it would be love. And... It is love that compelled the whole ministry of Jesus. It was love that compelled Jesus to grab onto his cross rather than let go. It was love. And therefore, John deduces that since God is love and love motivated Christ to do the Christ thing that only Christ could do, that Christians who were called by the name of Christ ought to emulate that heart condition by loving one another. And insofar as we are born of God, we have been gifted some new capacities to love one another with the, uh, with the love and affection of Jesus Christ. And he learned this impulse right from Jesus, because John, who wrote the epistles, I believe also wrote the gospel, uh, entitled the Gospel of John. And in that gospel, we read uh, of the Last Supper. And John has his own unique take of the Last Supper and some unique things that Jesus said. And among the many things that Jesus said, because he was very verbose during the Last Supper, at least according to John, he said this to his disciples. He said, I'm going to give you a new commandment. And the new commandment is that you love one another. Now, if you stop there, that wouldn't be new. That's all over the place in the Old Testament. It's not even interesting. I mean, it's interesting, but you know what I mean. Uh, he said, I want you to love one another as I have loved you, or to the degree that I have loved you. That's the new bit. And so Jesus taught this, John remembered it, and is now taking that teaching and reapplying it to his congregations all over Turkey. It's incredibly important what he's saying, to love one another, because all of us have been in relationships where love has been lacking. Even religious institutions that pride themselves on being connected to a loving Christ are very often not loving with one another, because that kind of love goes against our innate sinful condition. It's an aberration of our condition to love in that way. But when Christians act with severity, with coldness, with remoteness, without empathetic feeling, the, 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 the God project goes awry. It actually is not just a defiance of good-natured relationships. It's a defiance of God. When we don't love in that way, we're defying our maker. So that's something about the direction. He says, beloved, let us love one another. Three times, love one another. But then he gives a definition of what this love is. John defines his terms. He's like a good dictionary. He's defining his terms. John writes, this is love. He says it in verses 9 and 10. This is love. Now, I want you to notice how important it is that he's defining his terms. He assumes we don't know what love is. So he's defining his terms. This is love. And by the way, this is enormously needful to define your terms. Define the core concept, conceptions of your life. It's very needful because if love is not defined, if love is not defined, it can uh, express itself in ways that are absolutely life-destroying. 
I think one of the dumbest bumper sticker slogans I've ever read. It's just so dumb. It's, it's mind-blowingly stupid. It's, uh, it's used in a variety of ways, in a variety of political contexts. I don't care about any of that right now. But this is the slogan. Love is love. Love is love. It's just a way to suggest that anything, as long as it corresponds with loving feelings, is totally great. That's mind-numbingly stupid. Remember John Paul III, who never existed. I mean, remember John Paul III, who talked about the hysterias of love. I know lots of people that love fentanyl, and I mean love it. They love fentanyl more than their families. I know lots of people who love abusive men, who keep on abusing them and their children. I know lots of people who love what they call self-care. You ever heard? It's just psychotic. Like, I believe in self-care. Okay, yeah. It's fine. Uh, go to Fiji. Um, have a nice vacation to Colorado. Uh, drink herbal teas. Drink matcha. Actually, never drink matcha. It tastes like you're drinking grass. Um, but, um, but like self-care, do your yoga. It's fine. But, 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 there are people that take that like too far where their self-care and self-infatuated love goes so far that they start dropping all their other responsibilities and developing like severest boundaries with everybody else around them in case those people impinge upon their perfectly orchestrated self-caring life. You hearing me? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay, so uh, like that can get go awry really quickly. Or people can love ideology or ideological agreement more than other people. I just saw this the other day written by somebody on Facebook who I thought was my friend. Uh, Facebook just kills friendships, but um, they, they were talking about the last election, and I'm not getting into it, but they said, if you don't vote for this candidate, more than that, if you vote for a third party candidate, or if you don't vote at all, you are a person possessed by hate, and you are no longer my friend. I don't think they understood the irony or the stupidity of what they communicated, right? That's insane. So unless you agree with me, you're full of hate. Um, that's a hysteria of love. And the word love has been ill-defined in a million different ways and used abusively and horrifically. And by the way, the one who has hurt you the most in life, abused you the most, has likely muttered the words, I love you, on scores of occasions. The word in and of itself, unless it's given the right content, means nothing. Or it could just be a, a coverall for abuse and the worst of human behavior. And so we need a definition. And John defines his terms. In both verse 9 and 10, he writes, this is love. And I'm just going to go with the second version. This is love, he says in verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Notice he first defines it negatively. He talks about what love is not. Not that we loved God. It didn't come from us. Love for God is not a human invention. Love does not originate with people. That's what he's saying. But more than that, he's, he's saying we never got it right. Not that we loved God. We didn't get it right. We didn't keep the commandment to love the Lord your God with heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love those whom he's made in his image. We never did that. We didn't read the right books. We didn't repent deeply enough. We never fixed our crazy families. We never had that conversation with our dad that would have solved some problems. We didn't get over our addiction. We didn't face our demons. We ran from our problems. We didn't listen enough. We weren't charitable enough. We didn't walk the extra mile. We did not love God. That's what he's saying. This is love, not that we loved God, but, but he loved us. 
So that's why we call it one-way love around here, because it always comes from the source to the recipient, and the source is God and the recipient is you. And then he says, and this is the evidence of love, so that you know I'm not just talking in hallmark sentimentology. You know, I'm not sentimentology. Is that a word? It sounds like Scientology. Um, I'm not just giving you empty sentiment. This is what he's saying. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And the evidence that he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Now, that's weird evidence, but let me dive into it a little. What is a propitiation? It's a word for sacrifice. What's well, a sacrifice? Something gets stabbed instead of you. That's what a sacrifice is. Something visually, parabolically, symbolically, and incarnationally gets killed so that a guilty person escapes scot-free. That's the system of sacrifice. It's a substitutionarily oriented system. And this is what John says is the evidence, the clearest evidence of God's love for us, that someone is punctured that Jesus Christ, more than that, the punctured Jesus is the evidence of that love. Not a psalm, not a promotion, not a food pantry, not the Grand Canyon, not getting your favorite politician elected. None of those things are the clear-cut evidence of God's love. What is the evidence? Blood. Blood is love. Sacrifice is love. A substitution is love. That is John's point. Real love, the true definition of love, God's love, is Holy love. That's what real love is. Holy love. Holy love. That's what I'm talking about today. Holy love. And holy love is interesting. And holy love often defies our expectations and experiences of love because holy love is not willfully blind. It's not willfully blind to problems. It's not sort of the all-accepting grandma who's just too tired to render an opinion anymore. Uh, nor is it like Nick Carraway from The Great Gatsby who begins the novel by saying, I reserve all judgment. Like, I don't see any problems. The whole book is a critique of Nick Carraway. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't work out well. Like, I just withhold all judgment. Everything is neutral. It's all fine. Everything is awesome when you're part of the team. Uh, yeah, not really. Love is not willfully blind. It sees sin and demands sin's annihilation. That's what love is. So it's not willfully blind, but also holy love is not squeamish. It doesn't run away. It doesn't get scared off by people who are deeply troubled to their core. Instead, it storms the beaches on D-Day. It runs into the ashen cities of our lives, and it saves us even if it has to die in the process. That's holy love. goes all the way. Complete sacrifice for the thing that hates it, for the very thing that defies it. It wants that thing, that being, that person. That's holy love. You know, sometimes we can think of holiness as like a priceless statue in a museum, like Michelangelo's David, you know, unstained, untouched, roped off by velvet, you know, so that nobody gets near it. That is not true. Holy love, biblical holy love, sells everything to claim what it wants. Holy love is the writhing Judean toiling and twisting on the limbs of a bleeding tree his ragged voice mumbling mercy until his dying breath. That is holy love. Goes all the way for us. David Wells put it this way. What we see at the cross is the white-hot revelation of God, of his providing the price that holiness requires. The cross was his means of redeeming lost sinners and reconciling them to himself, and a profound disclosure of his endless mercy. It is, in Paul's words, an inexpressible gift that reorients our own love. 
That's the key to knowing how to love people well. You have to sit near the source of love. You have to have the true source of love to all of a sudden give life to your love, healing to your love, sanctification to your own loves, so that we don't hurt people with what we think is love but really isn't. C.S. Lewis wrote this, by the way, Until We Have Faces. He says, most of what we call our love in this age is simply ourselves craving to be loved. So this is my invitation to you. Listen to the fictitious Pope. Listen to John Paul III and distrust your love. Distrust sick, disordered, hysterical, needy, clingy, drunk on self love. And instead, listen to the music of the 1980s. Listen to Steve Winwood. You remember, give me a higher love. But listen to Steve Winwood. You need a higher love that I keep dreaming of. A higher love, right? That's what we're here to do week after week is turn toward holy love so that we can be shaped into people who love more honestly and liberally and graciously. We turn toward a holy love, which is our source of detoxification. And holy love, friends, if I can liken it to a human image, is like a campfire, a raging campfire that both warms and disinfects the closer you get to it. The further away you retreat from the heat of cruciform love, the colder and more deeply infected you become. If we are to love one another, we have to first be the beloved of God and be loved by healthy love, that is, by Christ and by those who resemble Christ. So if you want to know what love is, hang out with people who love you well from a place of health, and you'll draw near to the fire. Come to the service of worship where you get the word of God and the sacraments that remind you of the audacious grace of God. So we are called to love each other with divine, holy love. And love is the mechanism behind the cross. Friends, it is a love that sees, a love that sees without rosy ray-bans or the power of positive thinking. That is, sees things as they are. It's also a love that pursues, that walks into the mess of humanity, into our sin, our pettiness, our disrespect, to labor for our own health. And it's a love that absolves. It does not keep track, keep score, but pardons sin with a vulgar and scandalizing grace. That love, the all-seeing, all-pursuing, all-absolving love, this is holy love, and this is how your Christ loves you to death and beyond. Always. Beyond the fading of the United States and the ending of the world. Always and forever. Amen.